0: My name is Margaret Carey, and I'm here with Tinkerbell. That's right. Together, we make magic. I'm the original reference model for Tinkerbell, for Walt Disney, and Peter Pan. And you're listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane.
1: Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more, right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane.
2: Welcome to episode 126 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I'm glad you're here. Today we have another return guest, and it's one I am incredibly pleased to have. When I first had Margaret Carey, the animation reference model for Tinkerbell, as a guest more than two years ago, we got a lot of her Disney stories and talked some about her book that was going to be coming out, quote, soon. Well, it's finally available now, and that's the excuse I had to sit down with her again, and I'm so glad I did, because as you'll hear, much of it wasn't specifically about Disney, though that did come up. Instead, we got to talk about who she is, what's important to her, and even some things she's never been asked before. No matter how many interviews you may have heard or read with her, or how many times you've heard her speak, you'll learn something new and gain a deeper appreciation for this remarkable woman. In this episode, Margaret talks about a quick overview of what it means to be the animation reference model for Tinkerbell, and how people eventually found out how she got into show business 84 years ago, what she loves about TV, working on an episode of The Lone Ranger, tap dancing now and throughout her career and how it instilled confidence in her, a brief tangent about singing in the rain and dancing, living in fear from the time she was a small child, waiting for the next catastrophe to happen, why that happened and how she overcame it. And finally, the optimism of Tinkerbell and how Margaret brought that to her. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story.
1: Skywalking through Neverland Hey, everyone! Are you looking for a fun-filled and family-friendly Star Wars and Disney podcast? If you answered yes... Then join me and my sweetie wife on Skywalking Skywalking Through Neverland. Neverland.
2: You can hear us every week. We are Skywalking Through Neverland wherever
1: podcasts are played. We look forward to having you in our Skywalker family. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. Almost two years ago, on
2: Episodes 85 and 86, I had the pleasure of bringing you an interview with the delightful and amazing Margaret Carey, the live-action animation reference model for Tinkerbell. Now that she's released her new book, it's time to talk to Margaret again, and I couldn't be more thrilled. In case you missed those first episodes, let me introduce you to her properly. Margaret Carey was the live-action animation reference model for Tinkerbell in Disney's 14th animated feature, 1953's Peter Pan. A successful voiceover career followed, using her skills in 21 different dialects and 48 character voices in over 600 animated shows. Margaret later produced her own radio show called What's Up Weekly at KKLA 99.5, the most listened-to Christian talk radio station in the world, and incidentally, where we're doing this recording right now, just like we did the last one. She continues to be in demand as a keynote and motivational speaker, communications trainer, storyteller, and humorist. And now she is a published author, having released her autobiography, Tinkerbell Talks, Tales of a Pixie-Dusted Life, in March of 2017. As extensive and remarkable as that bio is, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. So, Margaret, welcome back to Stories of the Magic.
0: Well, thank you, Randall Stewart Crane. I love it. You got the Scots in there and the Irish in there. and I'll... Okay, Randy, I'll, I'll behave.
2: <laughs> oh, well, where's the fun in that going to be?
0: <laughs> well, for Tinkerbell, that's not what other people might call behaving. (laughs) You just never know.
2: That's true. (laughs) Now, for the benefit of those who missed our first conversation, let's do a quick overview of what it means that you were the animation reference model for Tinkerbell. Like, you know, what is it? How did you get the job? And how did people find out that you were?
0: Well, one of the things that happens when you do an animated movie is they have characters design before they start in almost anything else and so how is that character going to act? And how is that character going to act all the way through the movie if you're using 12 different animators, etc., cetera, et cetera? Well, it's sort of based on the same idea of Leonardo da Vinci, who said, I need a model. So the difference is with the reference models for Disney is we go on to film and we actually act out the scene, often in costume, Often with others, we record the. For example, when I did the Redheaded Mermaid in the movie uh, Peter Pan, uh, I went and recorded the line, and you probably all heard it We just wanted to drown her. And then <laughs> when we actually did the live action work to be a reference, we had to match exactly what we said. So it's not easy. Believe me. And they use it for everything. Of course, now they can do it electronically. I think it's remarkable how they put characters, animal characters, and and make them look like John Goodman. It's just amazing. But it it has been done for years and years and years. Now, Disney wasn't really pleased to get the idea out to people. It had to be that their animators were so incredible that they could do it all in their head. Well, they could. There was no question about it. They could. Mm-hmm. But they did cast people, in these different characters. And lo and behold, in Look Magazine, just before Peter Pan came out in, uh, that would be 1952 or right around in there, because it came out in February 5th, 53, mm-hmm. uh, they had, I think, six pages in Look magazine, with the pictures, and as a matter of fact, explaining why this, how it's done, and us on the sound stage, and I was thrilled because in my book I have a picture of that whole page of me sitting there looking very grumpy on a stool, and it's the scene where Captain Hook said, "Yes, Miss Bell, but don't forget." Peter has banished you from Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we do it, and it's great. It's great fun to do because the storyboard artists are right there to tell you how the scene should go. But your movements are your own. The personality is your
2: own. So it's pretty much it was improvising. All of these, they would give you the direction, and then you took it and made it yours. Yes. Right.
0: The first time that I stepped out in front of the camera with Mark Davis, who designed Tinkerbell, and of course, one of the famous Nine-O-Men, he also did Crue- Cruella de Vil, he did, um, what is that called, Pirates of the Caribbean? Some little ride that they did in oh. Disneyland, I don't know. Yeah,
2: it sounds familiar. And Haunted
0: Mansion, and so, when I stepped out in front, I said, Mr. Davis, that's how long ago it was, folks. <laughs> You called each other, well, not me. He could call me Margaret. But he was, Mr. Davis, what do you want her to be like? Do you want her to be Ditty, like Betty Boo? Do you want her to be above it all, like Queen of the Fairies? And he said, Margaret, we want her to be you. And I thought, gosh, golly, I think I could do that. (laughs) And at that moment, I brought the third dimension to the character. And that's actually what all the reference models do. They bring the personality to the character.
2: Very nice. Now, when you got to doing that, you had a long history of doing things before. It wasn't Disney didn't just see you on a, you know, in the shopping mo- you know, center or something like that and say, "Hey, could you come do this? Or the
0: drugstore, right? Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Atlanta>, Turner. <laughs> right. No, actually, I caused the depression. I was born in 1929, and everything went right downhill from there.
2: Well, they figured everything had peaked. You were born, and it just wasn't going to get any better.
0: I knew I liked you. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) and unfortunately, my mother passed away in childbirth, and I was adopted, fortunately, by two elderly people who were darling people, and my mother wanted me to be in show business. Actually, she wanted to be in show business, but she never said so. So the other point was that I could make $8.50 a day as a child actor. So, Randy, I've been working at this 84 years. I'll be 88 next month. And I've had just a pixie-dusted life. That's why I named my book, subtitle, you know, Tinkerbell Talks, tales of a pixie-dusted life. So I learned how to tap dance. I learned the discipline of working in the business. I came through about 37 major motion pictures with Eddie Cantor and Joan Davis. And But my favorite, of course, was television, which was just coming in. I did five years on the um, internet, uh, not the internet, the, uh, what's the word I want? Coast to Coast, what Network. Network. Thank you. You're I see. I'm 87, so I. But anyway,
2: <laughs> you're forgiven a slip now and then.
0: <laughs> you just have to put up with me. But I did five years uh, with one of the first family shows with Charlie Ruggles, and then I had my own TV show in Los Angeles for five years called Teleteen Reporter, and then I was on radio at the same time, and I was at this point working for ABC. We did a big show. I got hired by the choreographer of that show to work on a picture in tw- at 20th Century Fox. And uh, Ron Dupre was the other uh, dancer who got hired as assistant dance director. And while I was there working on that picture, I got a call from my agent. So I had an agent from the time, I guess I was about t- 10 And so they're the ones who knew all these things that were going on. I just didn't break in at at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I got this call and said, can you get off work tomorrow? They're interviewing for a a reference model. Well, she called it a rotoscoping model, which it was not. It was a reference model uh, over at Disney. I said, I will break my leg to get (laughs) over to Disney. That was the most exciting thing to anybody working in the business, mm-hmm. working at Disney. So that's how I got the call.
2: Okay. Um, you mentioned that you love TV, and I read that in your book to you. So just love TV. What is it you love so much about TV?
0: Well, when you're a little kid, four years old, and you're working in your first movie called A Midsummer Night's Dream, and you have to go in and You have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, put this stuff on your face, be driven all the way over to Warner Brothers, uh, get into your costume, you be checked over, your hair is done, and then go to school. Well, school at that point was grown-up tables, grown-up chairs, and we were four years old and we kept – we had to work really, really hard to keep our bottoms in the chairs. Mm -hmm. We would just slide out. And the day dragged on and on and on. Then we would go do the seat. Then we'd have to do it again. Then we'd have to do it again. Then they would move the camera. Then we'd do it again. And, you know, this is not a kid's way of doing... Now, our gang comedies, that was different. That was really great fun. I never knew what was going on there, but, you know, run over here and smile, run over there and look sad. But... (laughs) You had to get the, the um, scene in the camera, in, um, in the can, so to speak, first or second take. They didn't have time to rearrange and do all of this. You had to turn that out quickly. Mm-hmm. So that was okay. But all the other movies just dragged. So when TV came along, uh, you got in there, you did it, you, it w- went out over the air, and you were done. I never saw a kinescope of anything I did over the network until I was 56 years old. I never knew that I was really good at the work that I was doing. I cried. We had kinescopes. There was no way to see it. But the idea that you could go in and be creative, and then if if the light would fall down behind you, you would just say something about it and go on with the show. (laughs) Unlike movies. Mm -hmm. So for creative people who really want to fly by the seat of the pants, nothing like television.
2: That makes sense. I've been watching some 80s TV shows recently on DVD and listening to the commentaries and things. And I know with a movie, you might have three, four, five weeks of principal photography. And they were talking in some of these commentaries about we had six days to turn around an entire episode.
0: Well, if I may, uh, you, you brought up a subject, so I'm I'm going to digress a minute from Tinkerbell for, oh, a, for a minute. I'm good at digression. I've <laughs> learned how to do that in my 88 years. Anyway, <clears throat> when I got the call to be the girl in a Lone Ranger series, an episode called The Squire, while I was beside myself. Because the Lone Ranger was my best friend. I was a very lonely child, but I didn't know it. I was kept so busy. My folks didn't know that I should have children around me. But it was great. I'm not complaining. But we went to the Hitching Post on Hollywood Boulevard every Saturday. That was my date with my mother. Is I read that about excited? this.
2: This was right across the street from the Pantages. Pantages.
0: Right? Is that exciting or what? <laughs> but I knew all the girls, what they did. <clears throat> they were incredibly slim. They had incredibly tight dresses that dragged in the dirt, and, you know, with the horses around. I never could figure that one out. <laughs> and they always got in front of the gun of the hero while he was holding it on the bad guys. They always did stupid things. And if they had been. Galloping on a horse for 20 miles, they got off, their lipstick was perfect, and their hair was perfect. And you always knew that the cowboy never loved the girl. Right? There was just, that was a reason to sing. Anyway, (laughs) so I got this call that I could go over, and uh, I was going to be the girl. Well, it turns out, it turns out that she was a teenager, and she was feisty. Now, let me tell you, Randy... Every one of us young actors lied to everyone. We told tales because in my book you will see a page that my dad paid for to go in the SAG directory. And it says that I can sing, I can't, that I can swim, I can't, and that I could ride, I can't. <laughs> so, but it doesn't make any difference. You just put that down. <laughs> so, when I got there, here's this huge horse. In a lone ranger, and they I told them, I can't ride that's all right. we're just going to let you dismount oh I, that I can do yes, <laughs> I can get off. I can do that <laughs> so anyway, to bring up what you were talking about, get things done in a hurry um we were it was all interiors, which will surprise people. everything was interior, the horses were on the sound stage uh, all of the sets were on the sound stage the A supposed canyon was on the sound stage because they had to turn out a completed film, not just a TV show. That was a film with a camera. It wasn't like you go in and use a TV camera, Mm -hmm. but this was a film camera in one week. Now, that had the music with it. That had everything tagged on it, and I will tell you, when we would get to the scenes and if you came close to what the script called for and it made sense in the scene, in the storyline, they printed it. <laughs> and the other thing I'd like to say about it was that the Lone Ranger and Tonto were the dearest people. Just absolutely. It was a rough and ready set. I mean, these were all men Mm -hmm. who knew the time uh, constraint, so they would move uh, sets and move lights and move, I mean, by grunt, strength. So they were rough and ready. Well, Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels would take me over in the corner and sit and chat with me so I wouldn't hear all this rough language. Yes, wow, that's the kind of gentleman... And the other, if anybody asks me that one of the great highlights of my career was I'm the one who got to say, no, dad, he's the Lone Ranger. (laughs) (laughs) I still love that. And I do see that people have sent me the clip or the episode Uh of the, uh, uh, and it's pretty good. That was where I learned that the set that we had because we had a fight scene, and I was to go over in the corner quickly and let the the men do the fighting, I felt it was so small. I I couldn't quite. And the script girl said to me, yes, it is small. It's to make the cowboys look larger. I went, what? (laughs) And I said, oh, now I know you never see a cowboy walk through a door. They will open it on one side, and then the shop will be on the other side. They couldn't walk through the door. I could. Uh You know, I was the right side. And, of course, with their cowboy hat on, there was no way. But we did. They turned out a film a week. Amazing.
2: It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, as you were going through your history, you were talking about uh, tap dancing. And I know that's been a big part of what you've done. I even saw a video from, I think, this past weekend when you were up in Tracy. Have you seen that? I did. I
0: haven't seen it yet. I
2: did. I saw it show up on Facebook.
0: Well, I it, it was just such fun to see the surprise looks on the audience's <laughs> face when I said, I bet you've never seen an 88-year-old lady dance. And I dance. I did. And it turned out very well. I did the... Um, <clears throat> I danced to... The theme song of the Andy Griffiths show, and I travel for that show. I'm going on a um, cruise in October, and then the last part of September we go up to Mount Airy, which was Andy Griffiths' hometown, and we turn it into Mayberry, and we have t- tribute artists that are there. And then I on it because I, because I was in two episodes of it. And fortunately, they are two beloved episodes. That's neat. And then we put on shows, and I tap dance for them, too.
2: Oh, how fun. Yes,
0: it is. You can find me on the Internet under TinkerbellTalks.com or Margaret Carey. I don't think .com. I just think Margaret Carey. Anyway, you will see me tap dancing to a wild tap number when I was in the Eddie Cantor movie. And I tap danced, Uh, we were supposed to be running a restaurant, and uh, so I was sort of just, I had a cute little apron on, I was Eddie Cannon, Joan Davis's uh, daughter, and Dick Humphreys was my sort of boyfriend. And so they gave us a, ta- a tap routine where we danced upon up on the tables in the restaurant. <laughs> and I don't know why they ever could talk me into it, but <laughs> I'm really too short to do what I did. Uh-huh. Uh, I was just too young to know I couldn't. <laughs> anyway, so I'm probably one of the best tap dancers that Hollywood ever turned out. And I loved it. I still do.
2: Yeah, That, that movie, is that If You Knew Susie?
0: If You Knew Susie, Okay. Yes.
2: Yes, uh, I found that on YouTube.
0: Did you really? It is, I
2: haven't had time to watch it yet, but it is on YouTube. We
0: sing a song that is such fun. It's called My Brooklyn Love Song. And it starts out something like, it's spring hay. And the boys just chopping high up in the trees, Hey, But the boys are saying, I forget, but I love the, the bridge. It goes, we could watch the barges tow the trash right out to the sea.
2: <laughs> How romantic. It's yeah. It's a
0: darling song and the only thing that I do wish it had been changed when they changed the tempo for the tap dancing they didn't make it quite fast enough. Mm. We were fighting to keep it down because of the steps that we had. No one would know that unless you were a dancer. Uh-huh. But I watch it every once in a while, and I say, oh, shoot, why couldn't they have just made it a little bit up-tempo, but they didn't. And so, every once in a while, people say, oh, my lands, you can tap dance. And I go, my lands, yes, I can.
2: <laughs> and you'd said in your book that the learning to tap dance really kind of gave you a gift of confidence. Um, how, how did that happen? How, like, how did tap dancing you know, kind of instill that confidence
0: in you? Well, the, the, the thing about tap dancing was I was in the classes with the top dancers around. They were all older than I, and they were all working. Mm-hmm. I think that was the main thing. <gasps> They're actually working at this. They're actually, you know, going to... We would. They would be work, working at Fox or Warner Brothers or MGM and then come to the tap class at night, spend two hours at the class. So I got the feeling that if they could do it, I could do it. Uh-huh. And besides that, I was prettier than most of them. I was cute. I was adorable. I didn't realize that I was about five years younger. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that gave me confidence And uh, Ann Miller, I knew for many, many years. Not well, but I knew her as I was growing up. And I got to tell you, if anyone would ask me who was a better tap dancer than I was, immediately I would say Ann Miller. She was incredible. My uh, remembrances of her, we had a man in town who was sort of an icon, is uh, he had Capizio's Dance Shoes shop. And everybody would buy their shoes from Mr. Morgan, everybody. And if you're tapped, and a lot of people don't know those, but taps can change um, tones. Or the screws come a little bit looser and you take them back to Mr. Morgan and he would sit there and chat with you. And as he was fixing them and, and so on, my folks just adored him. And you would see Ann Miller come with her mother and he would, Mr. Morgan would give the thumb to go to the back room and in there was the tap mat, a rolled up piece of... of uh, slats of board that he would unroll and she would go in there after school and rehearse and, and uh, because she had no, they had no money mm-hmm. they had absolutely no money and so she could rehearse and I mean you would hear her taps in there and maybe there I felt a little bit squeamish that maybe <laughs> I wasn't going to be that good <laughs>
2: <clears throat> Well there was unfortunately th- plenty of roles and jobs for tap dancers, and she couldn't do all of them.
0: That's (laughs) right. And tap dancing and dancing sort of took the back seat. I I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I was challenged on this. But you know with what's gone on with Debbie Reynolds Mm -hmm. and so on, the great tap numbers in Singing in the Rain were done by the men. Right. I mean, I've never seen anything greater than Donald Connors be a clown, and nobody remembers him for it. You know, yeah. uh, it, it's just they don't even remember that he's in the movie. And I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you to rack your brain. And the the movie star who couldn't talk, you know, that they were what is her name? Oh, she was sensational.
2: I know in the movie she was Lena Lamont. Yes, I can't remember and the actor. And
0: nobody remembers her. Yeah, but. What is interesting, you know that Louis B. Mayer insisted that Debbie Reynolds play the part. And she was, what, 20 years younger uh, as the lead uh, than Gene Kelly. The thing that if you watch the dance numbers with Debbie Reynolds, they're extremely simple. There's no complicated steps, but they look great, just great. Well, she was a top dancer. That was one of the things that Kelly was upset about. And she was a nervous wreck because Mm. she was not, she didn't think she was prepared for that movie. She really, really didn't. Uh And, of course, she was great at it. But just for the fun of it, the next time you watch it, watch the dance numbers that look great, lots of everything. And I've forgotten how how many times they had to do the rollover on the couch. Oh, yes. Because it it just was a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. But dancing down the steps, those are simple, simple steps. And, of course, I think Debbie Reynolds could do anything in the whole wide world. I think she could have been president of the United States. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. I'm Now I have a reason to go back and watch it again. Like, there I need go. a reason to go back and rewatch there Singing you in the go. Rain. <laughs> one of the things I noticed was one of the very first things you said in the book was that you had talked about, especially when you were little, and I haven't gotten far enough in the book to see when or how this changed, but you talked about kind of always looking for the calamity that might strike you down. Like oh, just yes. living in fear all the time. Always. Pretty much. How, did, how long did that last?
0: Let's see. I'm 88 <laughs> in May. Uh, uh, there is something about being adopted. One day it seems to you, You have a huge family, cousins and everything, and brothers, whom I remembered. The the two older brothers, that's what kept me going. Uh, And then suddenly you're with these two people. And as you probably read, it was true what happened as well as I can remember it. When I tried on or I was being measured for the costume of the little fairy, Mm -hmm. they kept telling me to call this woman mommy. But I have a mommy, you know? Right. Uh, I didn't, I, I I. couldn't figure it out. And when the, the men walked down the line to pick and choose which children were going to be in the uh, in the uh, movie that they were going to choose, uh, I figured that they were coming to take me away to another home.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Well, you don't get rid of that yeah. easily. Uh, so, and the other thing is that, I got to hold a 50-cent piece in my hand every day when my dad would pick, pick us up and drive us home after being at the studio. So I knew that that was money. I knew that I had to bring money in. Now, they never said that to me. I don't Mm -hmm. remember them ever saying it to me. But they did discuss Shirley Temple must be making so much money and Jackie Coogan is having problems with the money. So I must have picked it up. Uh, To see whether a catastrophe is going to happen, I guess when I got into television and nobody cared if a catastrophe happened, It was not precise like a movie. It was, uh, what do they say, by the seat of your pants? Right. Uh, You just say, oh, pick them up and go do it over there kind of thing. Whatever (laughs) it is. I think that's when I, you know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Fascinating question, Randy. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. It was one of the things that jumped out to me because that's something that I've struggled with for a long time. Is not so much calamity, but just kind of that sense of anxiety or fear or something and I thought well here's somebody else who has dealt with that too.
0: Well another thing is that I was brought up and perhaps you are because you tell me some of the books you read that there was a scriptwriter. Mm-hmm. I knew that God was my scriptwriter. Uh-huh. I didn't know how he was going to get me to the place and how much I had to go through because right. if you read the books or even I just saw Beauty and the Beast, the live-action one, Mm -hmm. what they went through to get a happy ending. (laughs) So you have a little bit of that, too, although you know it's going to be okay. It's it's the beast around the corner
1: sort of thing.
0: And I think that's one of the things that they saw in me with Tinkerbell. I'm one of those. Do you remember the story about the twin boys? that they asked them to step into a room that had uh, a manure up to their knees in the room. Oh, yeah. And they gave each boy a, sh- a shovel. And one boy says, I'm not going to go in there. And the other boy says, I'm going in there with that much manure. There's got to be a pony in there someplace. <laughs> That's my attitude. And that was given to me when I was born. That was written on my heart. Mm-hmm. No question about it. I've lost two sets of parents, I've lost brothers, I've lost, you know, and it's, it's like, well, uh, something's good is going to come out of this. And I think that we see that in Tinkerbell. You know, what's around the corner? What's the next adventure? What can I see? Oh, look over there. Oh, I have to go through this to get there, but that's okay. I want to get there. And I think that that's one of the reasons that she is such an icon.
2: I think so. And it's, I think one of the reasons that the relatively recent movies have done so well, uh, we, because we get to see more of that. And so we get to see all of these different things where she does exactly what you just described. And in, in our best moments, we can see ourselves in her. We can aspire I, I think so to be too. that. too.
0: The other thing is that the first time that they uh, invited me over to the studio that they were making these things and Peggy Holmes was there and uh, I said, well, what, what she said, we don't know what we're doing, but we're having a lovely time. And, of course, they were making two movies at the same time, which was quite something. You can imagine mm-hmm. if you didn't know what you were doing. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was bad enough if you knew what you were <laughs> yeah. And they weren't afraid of it. It was just, what do we do? one of the things that she said that I loved, and if you go back and look at her,
2: That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Margaret Carey for being my guest again, and to you for listening. Come back next time to hear Margaret talk about Tinkerbell, working with some famous people, finding her birth family after 50 years, and so much more. I've been telling you for some time about the podcast, Cruise on the Disney Wonder, in September of 2017. Well, we're just about out of room. Not just our group, but the entire ship. As of the time that I'm recording this, there are, depending on exactly when you look, two or maybe three categories of staterooms left, and only a couple of rooms or so in each one. So space is now very, very limited. If you've been waiting to contact me about it, you're literally just about out of time. So if you're still thinking of sailing with us, email me now and let me know. I'll see if anything is still available, and if it is, I'll grab it for you. If not, I'll put you on my list so I can be watching for any cancellations that may come up. Sometimes they will, especially when we get to around final payment time. So right around the end of June, some people might cancel, and we might get some spots opening up on the ship and I'll keep an eye out for you. If something comes up, then if I have your information, I can get you into that spot. And if nothing else becomes available, well, I do hope you'll join us next time. Now for this week's Stories of the Magic tips and tidbits. This seems like a good week to talk about a tidbit from Peter Pan, the movie. You might already know that Margaret was the reference model and voice for The Red-Haired Mermaid. The Dark-Haired Mermaid was done by June Foray, whom you might know as Granny from the Looney Tunes, Rocky the Flying Squirrel, Grandmother Fa in Mulan, Aunt May in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and a whole lot more. The Blonde Mermaid was done by Connie Hilton. As far as I can tell, the only other acting credit she has is a guest role as a French exchange student in a TV series called The Halls of Ivy in 1955. If you know any more about her, though, please let me know. If you're doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing, or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, then I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney. For either of these, email me at at podcast.storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, Stitcher Smart Radio, or through Google Play Music. If there's any place else that you'd like us to be, let me know and I'll do my best to get us on there, too. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening or pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time.
1: You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at Or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode, and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.